I want to welcome my guest from the Unseen podcast to Crime Lines for this after show. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your podcast? I'm Caprice and I'm the host of the Unseen podcast, which is a UK-based true crime podcast which focuses on missing people, unresolved cases and cases of unidentified people. So we look at all of the cases that might not get the kind of media attention that the the bigger, more well-known cases get. So you might have heard of some of the cases on the podcast, but you also might not have done. My audience definitely likes the lesser known cases, so I'm sure yeah. they'll want to check that out. Now, the case that I covered that this week, the Shannon Matthews case, I know in the U.S., it's kind of hit or miss if people have heard of it. Usually, if they've heard of it, they've heard about it on a podcast from the U.K., but this isn't a small case there at all, is it? No, it was it was huge. Um, I was at college at the time and it was just everywhere. It, it was a very difficult case to pin down, though, because there was so much information, but a lot of it wasn't, you know, sadly about Shannon. It was about Karen. It was about her lifestyle. Um, and obviously tabloid newspapers here don't have the best reputation for the actual truth so you know it was it was a lot about Karen's lifestyle and, and the world that Shannon lived in but a lot less about Shannon than it probably should have been especially before she was found when she was still missing and they didn't know how this would resolve putting so much focus on Karen's life and lifestyle in the media like obviously for the police the investigation it was important but for the media you know for her to go on a BBC radio interview and be asked about how many fathers her children have seemed like something they didn't ask the McCanns. They didn't ask a lot of a lot of people, but they asked her. I think that's that's a real issue with this this case. I mean, obviously the lifestyle that they had was important to Shannon going missing. You have to look at the whole picture. But I think a lot of it was focus just on that and it's not the only case that you know unfortunately I've come across because some of the cases that I cover on the podcast are unsolved for decades um but there was a quite a not similar but a case that I covered from 1996 of two boys called Patrick Warren and David Spencer one was 11 one was 13 um they lived on a council estate in Birmingham in Solihull and it was the day after Christmas and they'd both been out playing with their Christmas presents. One had got a bike. They were out riding around. And yeah, they were out at midnight, which in some households wouldn't be acceptable. And obviously in their household, that, that was OK for them to do. And they both went missing and haven't been seen since. And that was treated in a very similar manner. You know, it was... Well, they were out at midnight. Why were they out at midnight? Um, lots of questions about their lifestyle and and less about less about them. I covered a case with my first podcast, The Babes in the Wood case, and those two girls, it was a similar situation. It was a lot of, well, why were they unsupervised? There'd be comments made about who works and who doesn't work, as though that has anything to do with the case. A lot of judgments are made. So for my audience who is predominantly American, do you want to explain council estates a little bit and any stereotypes that come with living on a council estate? 
Council estates are they're a really big part of British culture. You know, you you don't go far without seeing a council estate or being on one. And quite a lot of the time, you don't realise that you're on a council estate. You don't always know. It's not like it's, you know, there's flashing lights. This is now you're on a council estate kind of thing. It's It just looks like any other kind of housing estate. And I think most British people say they either grew up on one, they had family members who live on one, or, you know, they went to school with with people who lived on a council estate. You know, that's certainly the case for me. So it's not, it's it's a big part of of British culture. And I think in more recent years, it's perhaps become kind of connected with, oh, do these people on the council estate, do they get benefits? Do they work? Like you've said, are they unemployed? There is a little bit more judgment, I think, nowadays. 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was just the norm to live on a council estate, whereas I think now it's people judge a little bit more. It's just very much central, probably, to British culture. It's nothing that anybody would find unusual. So the fact that that Karen and her family were living there, it, you know, wouldn't have struck anybody as as unusual. And actually, there's a huge sense of community in a lot of those estates you know like like you said on the episode they all came together to look for Karen sorry for um Shannon that doesn't surprise me at all they come together they're very close they're a very kind of tight-knit neighborhood lots of time because people have grown up on them you know generations of people have lived in the same house a lot of the time so it is it's a, a place as a as a sense of community you know, looking at it in the sense of public housing here in the United States is handled very differently. And we have various ways to have subsidized housing, including Section 8. Almost all of the public housing and Section 8 housing in the United States has like long waiting lists, which is part of our housing crisis in general. People who need rental assistance are having a really hard time getting it in any reasonable fashion. You'll be on a waiting list for two, three plus years. So our council estates, there are more of them in England. So do you have like long waiting lists to get housing or are people able to apply and get housing in a decent amount of time? There is waiting lists. There are. And it depends where you are. Obviously in London, I think people have a lot they struggle a lot more. You know, I'm up north, I'm in Manchester. So it, perhaps a little bit easier the further away you get from the capital or from, you know, bigger cities. But um, there are waiting lists. But obviously in the 80s and things like that, a lot of kind of council housing was being privatised. So I think now there isn't as much as the there the was. There was There isn't as much opportunity to get housing as there was, but they are quite, they are still quite prevalent in the UK. You still can generally get help when you need it. Years and years and years ago, I worked for a private social services agency here in the US. And we had a woman who had, she and her ex had seven children together. He went to prison for domestic violence. So to go to prison for domestic violence, like not not jail, but actual prison that tells at least my American listeners will know how serious what he did was. And she was trying to get housing for her and her seven children. And that is eight people. She was coming out of this horrible situation. She just got finished with court. It was a rough situation. And it really surprised me how hard it was to get her help, even when she had such a very clear need that was so far out of her control. And I know there's 
a lot of talk in this case, you know, Karen never held down a job. Like she never did anything to help herself, you know, and I know that 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 stigma is there as well. This in this case that I worked on, that was absolutely not the case, but it was still hard to get someone help. And this idea of if you do everything right, then that's what these benefits are for. And then I have someone who did everything right, ended up in a really bad situation. And those benefits weren't there for her when she needed them. So with the Shannon Matthews case, I'm wondering, public opinion, do you feel it sways one way or the other as far as if other people were involved? I think a lot of people and a lot of the kind of things at the time was that Craig must have known something at the time because obviously they lived in the same house. And like you said in the episode, they were very they were very close, like they didn't kind of leave each other's side. And you'd think that she would give something away if they lived together. So I think there was quite a few fingers pointing in that general direction, particularly after he was arrested on the other charges. Not that they were in any way related, but obviously that all kind of comes together to form a picture, doesn't it, in people's minds sometimes. Right. And it was his family member. And mm. the investigators had reason to believe other family members of his were involved and arrested them, but they were released without charge. So it seems like they definitely leaned that way. But, you know, Michael Donovan never said it was anyone except Karen. You could argue he was covering for his family, but his story didn't really change the entire time. And I mean, he broke... <laughs> They barely got him in the back of the van and he broke down confessing to everything and and telling the whole story. And Karen's story changed multiple times. And I think that's what really undermined her when she got to court. And you would think if he'd, he'd confessed to all that, that, you know, if there were other people involved, you'd think he would say. But like you say, unless, you know, he didn't want to get his family involved. It seems like his story is relatively coherent in comparison to Karen's changing, changing stories from the beginning. Right. It seems like the first story she told was even kind of suggested to her. And she's like, yeah, that's it. And then when that didn't make sense, she's like, OK, well, it was this person. It was that person. Almost always people in, you know, Craig's family that she was pointing fingers at. And she definitely... As much as, like I said, as much as she seemed to be courting the press while Shannon was missing, even against the advice of the police, even against the family liaison, even shaking the curtains to watch them move on the television, she really would like them to pretty much leave her alone now. But wow, they find her wherever she goes. I think there's this kind of fascination with her now, isn't there, as well, because she was so um, public with everything that she did, you know, getting the getting the press involved in, in most things that she did. I think it's hard to kind of let go of that now, isn't it? And I think it's this this thing of, well, what what's she doing now? You know, where is she gone? People are, are still really interested in knowing. I, I think it's because there are, there are so many questions left. And I think people you know, still kind of want to put those to her, you know, because they haven't been answered. Why? You know, it's such a, a bizarre set of events to, you know, pre-plan and decide to do this for £50,000. It, it, I just don't think people can comprehend it. 
It's really interesting to me that they thought they would somehow get away with it because at some point they had to know the police would know he was the uncle of the partner. What are the odds the uncle of the partner just happens to find the little girl roaming the the shops and that she would not say to the police, oh yeah, that's the guy who kept me. So I also have questions about what circumstances she was kept. Was he like wearing a mask when he'd go in the room with her? Or was he showing his face so that she would be able to identify him later? And if that's the case, what's the end game there? I mean, I I still have a lot of questions about this case because some things just still don't make sense. And I will concede that maybe they don't make sense because, I mean, there, there wasn't a lot of brain power that went into this plan. And so maybe it doesn't make sense because they, honest to God, didn't think of it. But when I start thinking about it, not that I'm a criminal mastermind or anything, there's just so many gaps here that I want to know. I want those gaps filled in, and I don't know that they ever will be. I, I don't think it was a completely thought-out plan either. You know, I think they had this general idea that this would work and that if they courted the press enough, if they got them involved enough, you know, people would be on their side. But like you say, how they thought that it wasn't going to look strange that a family member discovers them wandering, discovers Shannon wandering about in the market. I don't, I don't know why they would think that would work. And you know, it's it only ended the way I think it could have really ever ended. You know, how how else was it going to end? Did they think you know they were going to get the fifty thousand and split it, and no one would have known any of the wiser because it. There was lots of red flags popping up really along the way. So I have a question about like welfare style benefits in the UK. Like here in the US, if you just had an influx of money into your bank account or you just started suddenly having all this money, it would impact your benefits. So if Karen Matthews showed up with, you know, 25,000 pounds, wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't that alert something? Yeah. It would because, you know, obviously, especially because she was unemployed, she would have to be reporting and and showing what she was doing to look for work. And, you know, she'd be quite analysed. So that amount of money being in the bank would would draw attention. So where she thought it was going to, where she thought, it, you know, unless she was going to put it under, a, you know, put it somewhere and hide it, you know, I don't know. It, but it would draw attention because obviously a lot of for those benefits you have to prove quite a lot it would look a bit strange and I don't know how she'd explain it right and if she stuffed it in her mattress I mean she'd yeah. go about spending it and at some point someone's going to be like where'd you get all that money you know someone in the the council of states it seems that there were a few people there she did have friends there she had family there but she did have people who were concerned with her children they you know were reportedly they were dirty a lot they'd run around without shoes a lot to the point like the bottoms of their feet would get dirty but then they wouldn't be cleaned and so it was just dirty all the time lots of yelling issues with um, I know she had been with Craig for a few years at that point but before that men in and out all the time drug use in the home child welfare was called a number of times on her so I think people would be in the neighborhood would be side eyeing her if she suddenly was flush with cash. So I just, again, maybe it's just because they really 
thought it was going to be as simple as hiding her, get a reward going, and then have her be found. Like maybe they really did think it was going to be that easy and there wasn't going to be a ton of scrutiny because, you know, if he came forward, Michael Donovan, and was like, oh, I found here, can I have the reward money? They would look into him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if they didn't realize that, but on the other hand, so I'm, I'm going to like do my speculation here that I don't normally do on crime lines. They're thinking Karen Matthews was inspired by the Madeline McCann case and the attention it got and the money it brought in. So surely she would have also noticed that those parents were being scrutinized so harsh and so, so much that why did she think that wasn't going to happen to her? Or to the person who, quote unquote, finds Shannon. I I don't just, I don't get it. I don't get it. No, I think I, the Madeleine McCann case has, I think it had a real big effect on this one particularly. Because I think they've kind of not done the same thing, but kind of done a similar thing. You know, when, when Madeleine McCann went missing, the McCanns kind of blitzed the press. They got them involved straight away. And, you know, I think that was what Karen was possibly going for. Um, but. Yeah, the, the McCanns haven't exactly had it easy in the press either. So right. you're right that I don't know whether she thought, well, if she turns up, you know, if she's not actually missing and we find her, then it will be it'll all be okay. I think that might be how she explained it to herself. Right. That once she was found, she'd be sent home and everything would be fine. But it was interesting to kind of read the reporting through like archives on websites, but also the newspapers and kind of see where all of a sudden it starts shifting where it's like, she was found. Oh my gosh. And then it's like, wait, why isn't she home? Why, why are the police keeping her? And she never went home. She went into care after that. And I know her grandparents did try to get custody, but the court determined that they were just too old at that point to take on her specific needs, particularly having been traumatized. We don't know everything that happened in that apartment has not been released, but you know, there's there's no indication that she was horribly abused while she was there. However, being tied up is abuse. Being forced to get under a bed when cops are banging on the door. I mean, that's it's a lot of trauma for her. And they, the court determined that her grandparents were just not at that point in their life equipped to handle it. So she went to care. And I honestly think getting the new identity, that was interesting. That's something that doesn't happen in the U.S. like it does in the U.K., where there's publication bans or you're allowed to change your name, your identity. Um, people getting out of prison are allowed to do that in the UK, where in the US it's it's a lot harder. I don't know that you I don't even know that you can do it anonymously like like that. You would have to file public paperwork. So anyone could anyone out there could find out your new identity and getting released with a new identity or in Shannon's case and her siblings getting new identities so that they could just have a life out of the public spotlight. That's pretty amazing. I think for victims, definitely it's something it's really important because for Shannon, she needs a fresh, a fresh start and she, she needed a fresh start away from all of this. And, you know, I think one thing that shocked me that I didn't know is that she was, 
she was drugged for so you know she was drugged for so long I hadn't realized that was that was happening until I you know I listened I thought oh, you know that wasn't something that I remember being really out there you know in in the newspapers and everything but I think people getting out of prison is quite a controversial what you know people getting out of prison and getting a new identity is quite a controversial one here I don't know if everybody agrees that that should always be the case there are some people that think well they've you know they've done this people need to know who they are you know if they're living in your community and then there's the other side where people think well maybe you know they've done they've been to prison they've done the time maybe they need a new life so I think it is quite a controversial one here in the U.S. like when you've done your time if you've been convicted of a felony you're often not completely free when you come out because on job applications, a lot of them you have to disclose if you've ever been convicted of a felony. You are not allowed to vote. You lose your right to vote. You have to go to court to try to get those restored. Well, if you're someone who's been in prison for a felony, it's not like you have the capital you you need to go petition court to do things. Can't own a firearm, which I know in the UK and the US, firearm laws are not even close to the same thing. But I mean, and you know, in the US, it takes a lot for us to give up our guns. So <laughs> felons are not supposed to um, have firearms. And there are a couple of things that you kind of lose some of your rights, and those are permanent. So no matter what you, you know, you get convicted of something when you're 20, when you're 50, you may still, you're still checking the felon box. You're still maybe not allowed to vote depending on the situation you might not be allowed to own a firearm 30 years after you committed the crime it's one of those where you think people do deserve a fresh start don't they you know you you do deserve to move on um but you're always going to have that argument of whether it's the right whether it's the right thing to do and like you say for for Karen even though she's out and she's living elsewhere and she's kind of got away from that people are still People are still following her. People still recognize her. She can't. She can't get away from that, really, can she? Looks like um, the most recent pictures I saw of her. She like dyed her hair and she was wearing a mask because you know COVID. Mm-hmm. And they still spotted her getting on and off a bus. And the Daily mm-hmm. Mail had a bunch of pictures of it. And I'm like, really, she cannot get away with it. She does have a very distinct look too. So she's someone that couldn't just blend into a crowd. She would be noticed. The Daily Mail like taking pictures of, of random random things, people walking over puddles and, you know, <laughs> exciting headlines like that. So getting off a bus was probably exciting for them. But, yeah, no, she – I don't think people – she was too – she was too recognisable because of this. So whether she's going to get away and people aren't going to know what she's doing, I don't, I don't think that'll be the case. Yeah, I think she'll pretty much find herself – at least annually on the Daily Mail website, some picture of her doing something completely random. I guess she was dating. She was seen in the company of someone they said she was dating who's a convicted pedophile. So of course that got everywhere. And But they were, they dated for very, or they were seen together for a very short amount of time. So it should be like a blip on the radar. But of course this is Karen Matthews. So anything she does is big news. And I'm just glad that that's not the reality for Shannon. Shannon, you know, does not ever have to be public with her story if she doesn't want to. Where here in the U.S., you know, we have Elizabeth Smart and J.C. Dugard who were found alive. And I mean, they had been kidnapped and held, but they were found alive and they've both 
to some degree been become public figures over it. And it's nice that Shannon has the full decision-making power there. Nobody can force her to do that. And actually they're precluded. The court has forbid them from forcing her into the public eye. So I think that's, that's great for her. And she's an adult now and she can make her own decisions on that. And I think it's good for her siblings as well that they were able to do the same because obviously they experienced, I imagine, a similar home life to Shannon and and having that opportunity to get away from it, start again and, and not have to also answer questions about what happened. You know, maybe her youngest sibling was like two. You know, there are some developmental things that happen with neglect young too. But the others who were, you know, were five and 12, they're going to have memories of the three weeks of not knowing where their sister was and the three weeks of the police in their house and the and being removed from the home. Like they're going to have very clear memories of this. You just have to hope that they're all getting the help they need. The whole environment was probably, you know, extremely difficult for all of them. And I'm a, I'm a teacher, I'm a primary school teacher. I, t- I teach six-year-olds. So the idea that this, was happening in the home and you know people had these it's one of those stories where people had these little bits and pieces um of information and it it wasn't necessarily until you know they were social services were involved they they did know these these different things that were happening but it wasn't until this had to happen for something else to be to be done and you know I know that the the serious case review said they would they couldn't anticipate that Karen would pretend that Shannon had been kidnapped obviously they couldn't they couldn't anticipate that but I think they did know they did know something was wrong in that household so the fact that it it kind of took this for something more to happen wasn't necessarily the way it should have gone but you know I know they've investigated as fully as probably they they are going to so I'm glad they did look into it. It's pretty common here as well when something like this happens and a family is known to have had contact with welfare services. Um, They do look into it and they do a case review. And I will say most of the time they're like, yeah, we could have done better, but, you know, we did what we could. And it's like, "Mm, I, I don't know. But it is hard to to acknowledge that what rises to the level of removal isn't always like what we would deem as inappropriate house. Like this house was not a safe place for these children, but it still did not rise to that bar for removal, which I know is a high bar. And I definitely know that it's not something that they take lightly, but it's, it's difficult when you see a situation where the kids were left there to their detriment. So thank you so much for coming on. It was really great to talk to you. But I want to know what is coming up on your podcast. What cases do you have coming up that my listeners might want to check out or ones you've covered recently they might be interested in? Recently, I've been looking at, I've had quite a lot of listener suggestions recently. Um, I do get quite a lot of listener suggestions from people who have heard about a case in their area, but haven't really heard about it in the press in general Um, You know, the cases that I cover don't get a lot of of actual coverage. So I get quite a few people who say, you know, there was one article on it and that's it. But can you do kind of an episode? So you might see from me half an hour, um, half an hour episodes. You might sometimes see occasional like little bonus episodes, which 
I want to put the information out there, but there's not necessarily enough to do, you know, a full episode. This weekend, I've got one coming out um, about a missing person called Marion Hodge in Scotland. She went missing in 1984. Um, it's a bit of a bit of a suspicious one. Family, family are kind of point fingers towards her husband. Her husband's never been never been arrested for it, but she went missing. They'd had an argument the night before, and he'd taken her to the bus station, and she's not been seen since. But it was her son's 15th birthday on the day she just disappeared. Since then, there's been no sightings. So that one is coming up this weekend. So that's a bit of a bit of an unusual one. Not really sure where to look. There's a lot of fingers being pointed, but the family are interested in trying to get it get it out there. Um, obviously, because she's been missing since 1984. So any information, I think any coverage will be good for her. I know Marissa from The Vanished will do, you know, older missing persons cases and even get comments where people are like, oh, they've been gone so long. Like, why why give it coverage? But then we see those cases get solved and people are found or their remains are found, even if it's been a long time. And we've seen cases where someone was found, but they were listed as a doe and never matched to their missing persons report. And so there's always a reason to cover those cases. They're always important to, to keep out there. And especially you, you mentioned she had a son. I don't know if she had more children, but he became an adult, not knowing what happened to his mother. You don't want him to go any longer, not knowing. Marissa's one of the people that when I first listened to that, she was one of the reasons why, to be honest, I, I started doing it because she does a lot of those cases. And, you know, I see some of the things, the comments that she says people make. And, you know, I've had a couple of those myself where it's been 40, 50 years, you know, why are you kind of bothering? If there's been no tips now, they might not be. But it's, you know, you wouldn't want to hear that if you were somebody's family member. So still, they still deserve coverage and you do never know you know things things have been solved from a lot longer ago and with the new new ways of investigating new dna technology the familial dna and all that you never know what can be discovered i always say that if we have the time and energy to dna test jack the ripper evidence we have time for 30 40 50 year old cases where People who knew them are still alive and still wondering. Yeah, I agree. So thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. And they can find you the Unseen Podcast, and I will leave the information in the show notes. So thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.